Hi everyone, welcome to Learning with Rishad. My name is Rishad Usmani. I'm a physician, angel investor, and founder of One Fail Startup. On this podcast, I talk about healthcare, investing in startups, venture capital, life, and everything in between. Bharat, thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited for this conversation. To get started, I think our childhood shapes us to an extent. There are things from our childhood that we learned that contribute to our success, and there are things that we have to unlearn from our childhood to be successful. Talk to me about your childhood and what are some things that you learned that contributed and what are some things you had to unlearn? Sure. So um, let's just start all the way back. Uh, I grew up in India, um, but also in the Middle East. And I basically jumped from one place to another every couple of years. Um, and so, you know, every time it was a new experience where you start from scratch, build new friends, build new relationships and, and scale that up. Um, the one consistency throughout all of that was, you know, my parents, obviously, but them saying, look, you do not have to be a doctor. You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be this. Do whatever you want, you know, be curious and that's fine. And so what's allowed me to stay through and make sure that, you know, I am who I am, I think is that curiosity from the beginning, which was, you want to go study animals, let's go to the zoo. You want to go study plants, let's go to the forest. You want to study X, let's go to X, let's go to Y. So there was never a don't ask stupid questions. But if you're asking questions, let's give an answer. If you don't know what the answer is, let's go try to find that out. That's something that I'm trying to inculcate in my own kids as well, that sense of curiosity. Um, and that, I think, has allowed me to continue what I'm doing now. Um, the fact that I was also jumping from one place to another allows me to bring relationships. And so for me, I'm very comfortable being outside of my comfort zone because that's how I was raised. You're never, when you're never comfortable, you're always looking for something new and therefore it allows you to get up to speed, become comfortable and really drive forward into, into different avenues in different areas. The one thing that I'd like to fix, um, again, grew up in India, as I mentioned, as I think did you. Um, and so, uh, the education system there is all about memorize this, study only this, answer only this. So it's it's it beats curiosity out of you to some extent because all you need to do is pass the exam and you're done. And you know you can get 100% and you're done if you get a 70 year failure, blah, blah, blah. So that's something that I've had to try to get out, which is it's not about the marks, but it's about the process to get to the understanding of the subject and how you can explain that to somebody else in a manner that makes sense. If you can do that, then you're good and you've truly understood the subject. Thanks for that very informed answer, Bharat. And I have a million questions and I did grow up in India as well. One thing that moving a lot programmed in me was this need to move every two years. And anytime there's discomfort in my life, my answer is how I can change my environment. There's a few quotes in Stoic philosophy and I, I'm going to butcher this, but essentially when you move or when you travel because you're uncomfortable, the problem is you, not your environment, and you're taking you with you. So your new location, you will be uncomfortable as well. Is that something you experienced? Is that something you learned by moving a lot? And if so, how do you now find comfort and stability as opposed to comfort in new things and new environments? I mean, when you're a kid, it's not like you have a choice in the matter, right? You move because you're moving. So there's, it's really, you, you sink or swim and you figure it out. Um, I think what's that, what, what's that led to now is absolutely what you're saying, right? Uh, 
if if something becomes comfortable or routine i don't like it and i start to get itchy and i i whether whether it's detrimental or not i try to break the pattern or break the routine but sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't um i think what i've done and again whether i'm successful or not i have no idea is i've tried to harness that in a manner that is that can help drive my career right um, i've been the ceo for a couple of companies and i didn't enjoy that because it's very let's do one thing and one thing only but as a vc now what i get to do is jump across multiple different areas so, so today i'm studying about cellular biology tomorrow i'm studying about gene therapy tomorrow i'm studying about day after i'm studying about something else so it you you get shallow enough to understand it but then you can jump to something else and drive that so that that to some extent um uh keeps me excited keeps me engaged and gives me the new experience that i crave versus trying to become comfortable in one thing and just being one thing and, and doing that over and over again perfect that that's a great answer parth let's talk about when to start on a new idea adam grant talks about the sweet spot for success as moderate procrastination so when you have a new idea you think about it for a while and then you get started and he he phrases that in the in the schema that when you look at people who do best on exams they're the ones who start early but don't submit to the last second they're not the ones who are procrastinators or the ones who submit early do you yourself do you have a proclivity to planning or a pro- proclivity to action i have a proclivity to action and a dangerous one at that i start lots of big projects cuz i have somewhat of an ego and i think i will learn on the way and i found oftentimes it doesn't work out and there are things that require planning before you jump in so i just look love to hear from your perspective do you fall in the bias to action or the bias to planning and which one do you think makes for a better investor and a better founder oh i i mean bias to action by far um i yeah i if if it involves planning if it involves sort of process i'm i'm not good at it because again it goes back to routine and for me it's just i have that fundamental issue with routine i just cannot do it um whereas you know again like you said i what i know i'm good at is figuring it out and figuring it out live to get to a solution right that i know i'm good at and that's why i tend to do that uh now what does that lead to you said you know you said exams and submitting assignments and stuff like that that might be why i've never gotten a 100 on anything or a 90 or anything i think the most i've ever gotten was like a 75 80 yeah. um and that that shows in that right it's 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 last minute it's driven it's good enough and it's good enough to get the job done and to move the needle forward i think i still do that currently um if you're if you're ever trying to get to 100 you will never get there right if you want to get to 90 you might get there but the time commitment to get there is a lot so the time commitment to get to 80 is i'm just throwing in like 2 hours as an example time commitment to get to 90 is 2 more hours time commitment to get to 100 is 2 more hours or 3 more hours or 4 more hours is it really worth that in order to get 20% more i don't think so so for me i still follow that policy you know even in diligence you can never get to 100% but if you are sufficient if you know what's there if you trust the team if you know what you're doing if they know what they're doing make a bet and things will figure it out because over planning is pointless the world is way too complex and way too heterogeneous for you to be able to plan to the dot and to the t this is a very interesting answer and one that partly goes against other vcs 
I would love to dig deeper into structured decision-making versus intuition in investing. And from what I've heard in the past, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Do you believe in that philosophy? And tell me about your process for decision-making when you're looking at pitch decks and when you're look, evaluating companies doing due diligence, how much of that is structure? How much of that is intuition? I mean, I, I would be lying if I told you I had, you know, the intuition of someone who's been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years, right? I just, I don't have that. I'm not that old. Um, at the same time, structure. Um, our, our hairline lies, Bharat. <laughs> uh, at the same time, structure, you know, I, I feel like structure is, structure is what's that? It, it makes you feel that you're doing the right process, but if you do it that way, you're missing out a lot. So if you are only structured, that's a problem. If you're only intuition, unless you have 30 years of experience, you're not there. So you have to balance that. You have to have some structure, but also have some intuition um, in order to drive that forward. So when I'm doing diligence, you know, if, if, if it's a hell no, then it's a hell no. There's no way it's happening, right? There is a very, very rare chance that something is a hell yes. It just never mm -hmm. happens. So for me, it's always, huh, that's interesting. Right? Now, that's interesting to me. I can tell because I am reading all the time. right? And I'm reading absolutely everything on completely diverse subjects all the time. And so for me, I'm trying to make up intuition by reading as much as possible and just collecting information. So when I think something is interesting, it's because somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I have read something of somebody else doing something and raising capital and being successful and getting into patients. So I say, oh, how is this related to that? Let me dig in further, right? And so I dig in a lot, but like we talked about, I don't dig into 100%. I dig into 50, 60%. And that allows me to say, this is really interesting. And now I want to spend some more time to get from 50 to 80% and then drive in. And so for me, you know, if I was structured, then I would say, oh, I have seen this company X. This company X has good management, good science, good this. Therefore, it is a good investment and therefore I will do dollars. I mean, there are some funds that do that. There's, um, um, I'm blanking on the name. There's an AI, comp AI fund that looked at, you know, all of the successful investments in their past and effectively tried to make a decision based on what AI would tell you to do. I'm blanking on the name now, and I don't know if that's been super successful. And at the same time, those that are completely in the way, like I will, um, you know, I will figure it out live and make a bet and see what happens. That hasn't successfully worked as well. I think it's somewhere in between. And your process in a career is to find the right balance between intuition versus structure. That is a fascinating answer. And I'm very happy I asked that question. <laughs> Let's talk about your undergrad experience. So everything you've said, you know, you have a bias towards action. You want to work on multiple projects at the same time. And I'm the same type. If you told me that if you gave me your persona and my persona to an extent and said person A went to do a master's and a PhD and person B went to med school, I'd be like, no way. Their personality does not fit 10 plus years of education. And the reason I went to med school is A, just pressure from culture, from parents, and B, I didn't know what else to do. And this is a very um, weak answer, I think. Tell me more about your path to, so you're an undergrad, you have committed to four years, and then you commit to two more years, and then you commit to four more years. What is What are those decisions like? And do you think looking back, it was the right decision? Is 10 years too long? And I'll, I'll ask one more question on that. 
does it make sense that every undergrad degree is four years? And this is a leading question. And does it make sense every master's is two years and every PhD is, you know, four to six years? Yeah, uh, I mean, so I'll answer the last question first because it's probably easier. Um, you know, is an undergrad four years, is a master's two, is a PhD five? I, I think time is irrelevant there. It's more about what you want to get out of your academic degree, right? And in an undergrad, it is learning that there is a whole world out there, which school doesn't teach you. School teaches you, do this, get marks, and get out. Right? Undergrad is well, for the first time, you're probably away from parents. You're, you've got the world of education that you can do in terms of subjects and theses and blah, blah, blah. And you're working with other people that are similar to you and you know, free birds effectively. So it's more about learning who you are as a person and learning about how to learn a little bit. Um, and if that takes four years, it takes four. If it takes five, it takes five. Schools still tell you it's four. So whatever, it's fine, right? That's, there's some regimen that schools need to do. And that's, that's where the four year comes from. Masters and PhDs are slightly different because there it's driven by what you get out of it. And in a master's, it's a thesis. In a PhD, it's a thesis and papers, right? And so my master's was, um, you know, about an 18 to 20 month master's. Um, and I'm happy to talk about sort of why I chose those as well. But my master's was 18 months. I got out with one paper. That is what I wanted. And out of my undergrad, I realized that, well, actually, let's take a step back. Uh, out, of, out of high school, and since grade six, I knew I wanted to go into biology. I don't know why, but I just knew I wanted to go into biology. I had no idea why. Uh, so I stayed in biology. 11th and 12th was biology as well. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor from grade 12, but I didn't know what I wanted to do out of biology. Uh, and so from India, I applied, got it to UFD. And I knew for some reason that, you know, immunology, microbiology sounds interesting. Bugs, kills people, kills animals. It's really no treatment against it. Um, why? Let's go figure it out. So I knew I wanted to go do that in undergrad. Um, and then undergrad taught me that there's this whole other world of host pathogen relationships and human immunology that I had no idea before. Right? So that's what I talked about undergrad being sort of exploring your mind. So master's was, okay, let's go learn human immunology and try to understand that. Um, I got bored of human immunology, um, especially immune deficiencies. And I wanted to understand viruses and immunology. And so why did you get bored? Sorry to interrupt, why did you get bored of human immunology? Because human immunology, it's very, it's very, uh, you know, it's the same reason I didn't want to go into med school. It's here is the knowledge, right? It is, here's anatomy. The bone is the bone. You cannot change anything, right? Physiology is physiology, you cannot change anything. Human immunology is human immunology, you cannot change anything. So it's more about learning T cells and B cells and this and that and that. For me, what got excited is how do you, and you, maybe this goes back to what we talked about, how do you disrupt, how do you disrupt routine? And for me, I love viruses and bacteria because it goes in and disrupts that routine of the human clock, the human immunology clock by changing it completely. And so I was really curious about that and I wanted to go learn that. And so I finished my master's, went and did a PhD, um, during my PhD, I decided I didn't want to be an academic. Um, I, I didn't like writing grounds. I wasn't good at it. I, I hated working in the lab. So what could I go and explore outside that? Uh, my PI was was supportive. So I finished my PhD in you know, three and a half years uh, and got out of that two papers, a review, and uh, the knowledge of what I knew and what I didn't know. Right? So to answer your question, 
is 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 the time a component i think time is irrelevant at least from a masters and phd level it's what you want to get out of that that really drives that um i ranted about this part so i forgot the first part of your question so if you want to repeat that i can answer that again you're putting the pressure on me bar <laughs> i think my first part of the question was do you regret the amount of time you spend in school and looking back i ask a different question what piece of advice would you give to bharat in undergrad and would you advise him to do anything differently in terms of your masters and phd and we'll talk about post phd after uh honestly what i would have told myself from 10 years ago was you know get outside experience rather than just academics because for me it was you know i'm i'm paying a paying a lot of money to come to do this undergrad degree uh, as an international student and so um you know i need i need to make it worth it and so let me go choose the classes that i think will help me in the future so i went into immunology and i went into class x and class y when there were easier classes available i chose the harder classes just because i'm like i have to you know it cost me 2000 bucks for a class i may as well get something out of it right uh, so it was very sort of i i'm thinking of that and therefore i need to choose it now uh, and so there were a lot of experiences that you know well we went to undergrad together so we can talk about it but there were a lot of experiences that that we had as as undergrads that i think were more academically driven than learning about yourself as a person that i i feel like i missed out at sometimes but at the at the other side is it made me who i am right so and when did you when and Sorry, how did you learn about yourself as a person you're always learning who you are as a person right i don't think you're ever 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 done with that um but you know it boils down to i i know i can get shit done and i know i can figure it out um so that's something that i learned during my undergrad right i mean when you have when you have assignments due tomorrow and you're starting today yeah. and you need to do it you just get shit done and it yeah. doesn't matter you you just need to pass you need to get 75 and i knew i could get 75 so let's just do it that way and get 75 okay i know there's a lot of physicians who listen to this and a lot of academics as well what advice do you have for them if they want to venture out of academics and um medicine and into the world of investing venture capital and i'd love for you to talk about your path post phd into venture capital yeah i mean honestly the one piece of advice is just do it right like that you're in a world right now where there are so many investors and they're always looking for advice so if you reach out to someone and say hey i'd like to learn more right they 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 will never say no right so always reach out and just have a conversation with them right um having conversations with people is what got me to where i am now and so get out of your comfort zone and just reach out and talk to people you don't have to make a commitment but talking to someone is not that difficult um uh my pathway is uh you know i talked about you know undergrad masters um in my undergrad i thought i wanted to be an academic went into the masters realized i didn't want to be an academic um thought i'd go into consulting because it was science but also doing other stuff um applied to a bunch of consulting shops i had no outside experience in real life work experience um and thought okay you know what phd makes sense i had this curiosity let's go figure that out but i didn't want to go just to any phd i knew exactly which pi i wanted and i basically 
This is funny. Um, I emailed him about five or six times. He never responded. Um, so one day I said, you know what, screw it. I'm, I know where his lab is. So I'm just going to go meet him in the lab. Um, and I just started walking down the hallway. This is at Nagel at the Montreal General Hospital. I was just walking to his lab. And I think he was heading home. And I just literally stopped him on the hallway. And I'm like, hey, you know, I sent you some emails. I'd like to chat about a PhD, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, just come tomorrow and let's chat. So I went there tomorrow. I went there the next day. I uh, started talking about why I want to do this. Told him, look, I want to do science, but I don't want to be a scientist. I want to go do something else. I don't want to be an MD, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's right time, right place, right person kind of thing. He was looking for a PhD student. He had, he was working for a, you know, he was a chief medical officer at, at, a, at, a, at a medical vaccine, at a biotech vaccine company. And they were looking to do something in the respiratory virus space. And I said I wanted to go to get industry experience. So it's sort of right time, right place. And I ended up joining his lab as a PhD. Um, told him, look, I want to get out. I don't know what I want to get out and do. I think consulting, but I want to go do that. He's like, yeah, that's fine. Let's figure it out. Um, so started working on my project during my PhD. Uh, you have a lot of downtime. And this is, this is embarrassing, but you have a lot of downtime when waiting for experiments. So I watched a lot of TV. And I think this was at the time where Shark Tank was starting to be popular. And I was watching a lot of Shark Tank and I'm like, huh, that's cool. Wait, so you can put money into ideas and see if that works. That sounds really cool. Um, and so I talked to a bunch, I just reached out to a bunch of VCs during my PhD. Um, and they all said, look, you know, you have no experience in the real world. Just go out, get some real world experience and come back and let's talk. And what are um, you messaging them? Like what's in the email? No, uh, it was just, listen, I'm a PhD student. Um, so I was careful. I only messaged VCs who were also PhDs. And my ask of them was, hey, look, you know, PhD, trying to get into VC, love to learn more about you. Do you have 30 minutes? And, you know, you, I sent about five or six emails, got rejected for most of them. One person or two people responded. They then connected me with someone else and that expanded my network, right? Um so I just did that. They also get some real world experience and come back. Um, so I said, okay, how do I get real world experience when I'm doing my PhD? So then I cold, cold emailed the McGill Tech Transfer Office and said, look, you know, I'm free labor. I, I think I'm helpful. Can I, can, I, can I come help you out? And again, they said, yeah, sure, free labor. What's, what's there to do? Just come over and help you out. So I did that for a few months with them. Um, my project out of my PhD, I said, this is an idea. I should go try starting a company around this if I really want to go be a VC. Um, so talk to the same VCs and they all, you know, they basically laughed it out of the room. Uh, like, you have no experience. This is a terrible idea. It's going to cost a lot. Clinical trials are expensive, blah, blah, blah. So I said, huh, okay, you know what? That's fine. At least I tried something. If it failed, it failed. Screw it. Um, so finished my PhD, got the papers, um, graduated, as I mentioned, three and a half years, um, and then went into healthcare consulting for a few years. Um, didn't enjoy healthcare consulting as much because it was very sort of, here is a process, right? You have to do this project and you have to do it in this exact manner and you have to get this deliverable and you give this deliverable to somebody else and they say, yeah, I don't like the answer. Just double the revenue projection. Okay, there you go. So you're sort of doing it for somebody else and it's very, you know, Excel files have to be perfect and everything has to be perfect and you know, design and all of that crap. Um, but I did that for a couple of years. It really helped me learn about the VC space, uh, sorry, about the biotech space, the industry and, and all of that. Um, but still kept in touch with my VC connections and would send them an email every six months. Like, hey, this is what I'm doing. And this is what I'm doing. 
and you know, out of the blue, so one of the people that I respond, I emailed to, um, this is uh, is that the business development bank of Canada, the BDC. Um, you know, she emailed saying, "We have a job opening now. Are you interested?" I'm like, yeah, "Sure. Uh, can you send me the posting?" She's like, "Yeah, the posting expired two weeks ago, but just send it to me. Send and send me a resume." I said, "Sure." So I sent my resume, um, and uh, I think within like ten minutes, they said, "Yeah, just come and have a first chat with us." Um, I had a first chat, went through the process and then got hired. Um, I think there was, I was the only one hired out of like three or 400 people. But when I was going through that process, I would you know, go to work, come back at like 5 p.m. And then from five to nine, I would just learn everything I could about VC or whatever I could about VC. Because again, it goes back to, I knew I could figure it out. So let me go figure out what VC was. And then I did that. And how are you I'm learning, just, Bharat? Like, are you taking courses, reading books, YouTube videos? I'm just reading, just reading as much as possible, right? I mean, Google is amazing in that there's literally anything and everything that you can think or think of and find. So I would just read everything about VC that I could. I still made a shit ton of mistakes when during my interview, but I knew how to fake. Fake it sounds terrible, but I knew how to how to talk my way through anything, and that's part of what I did. And you know acted like I knew enough to be curious, which I was, but also enough to say, I don't know this, and this is what I want to learn. Or this is how to drive it forward. And, um, and then there were a couple of experiences like me trying to start my company and what, you know, I have a, I have a lot of opinions about everything. And VC is, a, is partly an opinion role, uh, at least in terms of where the companies are there. And I shared a lot of those opinions in my interviews and backed them with facts. And that allowed me to get the role and, you know, many things happened after that. Let's go deeper into many things happened after that. I think uh, it's very interesting how you went from that to starting uh, Amplitude. Um, if you're open to it, talk me more about that journey. And maybe you can frame it in a way on what are things you might do differently if you were to do it again. Yeah. Um... So, so do things differently is 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 a, is a loaded question because yeah. I have no idea whether I'll be successful or not, whether Amplitude will be successful or not, if anything we do is successful or not. Right? So it's when you're in the midst, it's really hard to know whether you're going up or going down. You're just there. And so it's hard to say I would have done something differently because you have no idea. It's only when you fail or you're successful that that'll happen. But I'll, I'll walk you through the process and maybe maybe that'll, that'll answer some of that question. Uh, so yeah, went through that interview process, got into the BDC Healthcare Venture Fund, uh, joined as an analyst. Um, I had no idea about VC. I was sort of pretending day one, um, you know, and you know, we'd be having these sort of, our, our team was spread out across Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver and San Francisco. So we were having virtual calls. Um, and, you know, people would say something and I would just be Googling what is that on the side, right? so that I could act like I knew what I was talking about. So they'd be like, oh yeah, and the preferred shares, blah, 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 or what are preferred shares? And Google it and read quickly and say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so it was sort of, you know, you're learning by yourself and that's effectively what we see is always, you're thrown into the deep end, go and help a company and you just do it. So, you know, and, and meet as many companies as possible. So I did that for a, for a couple of years. Um, this was also the time where we had already at the BDC completely invested into all of our companies. A lot of our companies were doing follow-on rounds of financing and they were going public as well. So I worked with the partners to you know, understand what those follow-on deals look like. 
what you know how to take companies public uh, i spent a lot of time reading legal documents because i figured you know that can help differentiate me because everybody has a science background mm-hmm. but there's very there very few lawyers and scientists so if i can understand the legal stuff i can negotiate my way out of anything right so i spent a lot of time looking at that spent a lot of time looking at absolutely everything under the sun in terms of biology just reading as much as i could um and then uh you know when we were already at the bdc there were some discussions around we should be spinning out so that there were early conversations happening already um so me and three others we started putting the plans together in terms of you know this is the this is this is how you this is how you build a model for spinning out this is our strategy this is a thesis this is a plan this is the portfolio this is the deal blah 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 so spent you know 2015 to about 2016 was me just learning and doing follow ons and stuff like that in 2017 in earnest we started the whole process of spinning out um so that took about 2017 and part of 2018 where you're just putting together the packages and trying to understand and explain why we should spin out what are thesis is how do you launch a new fund who do you launch a fund with what companies exist all of that um we spun out in mid 2018 to launch amplitude uh, me and me and three others um we we were fortunate enough that we had a term sheet for the new fund um and that we had a commitment from bdc to kickstart the fund but no other dollars and no dollars in the bank um we were still managing the portfolio for the bdc and you know we were getting some income from there in order to to support our lives and all of that um so that was 2018 uh we spent about a year and a half fundraising uh where the first fund takes forever to close because no one knows who the hell you are whether your thesis works etc but we were lucky that the two partners were well known in the ecosystem um i was starting to become well known in the ecosystem um and the packages that we had put together were you know resonated and our thesis resonated and so we did our first close in 2019 november um then did subsequent closes to get to uh, the rest of the money by 2020 2021 and what um, made you you yeah. followed a path that in my limited knowledge is not traditional where most people will start an initial fund 5 to 10 million then 30 million and then go to the nine figure fund you started at the end part or at the you you kind of jumped step 1 2 3 and you started at step 4 it looks like and your first raise was from institutional investors or lps which is incredibly rare Uh, and only a very select few are able to do that what made you in particular so good at that why were these institutions you know um willing um what, what did you prove to them or show them well I mean, it's not it's not me right? i can't take the credit for this this was this was my team that did it um and the two partners had been in the industry for 20 plus years so they knew a lot of people so that that trust existed um but i think what allowed us to be more successful spinning out was um when we started or when we were at the bdc uh you know what existed in the canadian ecosystem in terms of vc investments then was microchecks and sort of the, the death by 1000 cuts like here's 100000 here's a million here's a 2 million here's you know a, a very strong sense of risk aversion and spending dollars towards doing deals what we did at the bdc that was different and you know everything is timing everything is luck everything is you know not really in your control but what we tried to do was say look that strategy doesn't work right let's put let's do fewer deals but let's put a lot of money behind those deals 
because if we think they are going to be successful, let's give them the best chance of success. If it fails, you know what, it's fine. But if we're successful, we'll be successful. We did that at the BDC. Uh, you know, a company called Zymeworks, which we uh, led the crossover around and took public. You know, we put 10 million US as a first check that had never been done in BDC's history yeah. until then. Right? Um, the IPO, we put another 10 million in. And everyone said, wait, it's an IPO. You should be exiting. You're like, no, no, no. Biotech is different. IPO is where you invest and help the company scale up. So 20 million US in one company out of a $135 million Canadian fund. Right? It's a lot of money. Oh my God. <laughs> another another company called Clementia, one of my one of the partners had founded from scratch, really strong uh, management team. But you know, everything was sort of chugging along, doing well. We had, I think, close to $20 million in that company. Yeah. Um, and they went public, uh, US again. And, you know, everything worked out. Company went public. Ipsen ended up buying them for $1.3 And we made effectively the entire fund and more with that. Right? Now, those companies and a couple of others were also the first companies in 10 or 12 years in Canada to go public on the US stock exchange and not the Canadian stock exchange. Right? So we were always driven towards let's try to do something different. You know, let's not follow routine just because it's been done before. Let's, let's change the status quo. Let's see what happens. Let's put more money into fewer companies. Let's really give them the best, best chance of success. Let's take them public. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, whatever. We're smart enough, we'll find another job. That's what it worked out. Yeah. Um, and so that allowed us to go and talk to our LPs, talk to our VCs, do all of that, and actually raise fund two. Uh, sorry, fund one. Um, what we also had was, again, timing. The BDC was looking to spin out a couple of funds, the healthcare fund and the, the IT fund. Um, and they gave us a cornerstone check that was effectively 50% of our first close, right? Because they said, look, if you were internally, we'd have to give you double that. If you're external, we'll give you half of that, but you have to raise the rest of the money. So we'll give you a chance, go figure it out. So we did that. Um, and again, we had the knowledge, we had the track record, we had the experience in order to get that done. And uh, it just, it's still in the process. So we've closed one fund one in the process of raising fund two. Uh, we did a first close late last year. I haven't disclosed much about that, but now in my investing out of fund two, um, and that'll be bigger than fund one. Oh, congratulations. You know, you. marrying what you said before about not everything is a hell yes, and 80% is good for an investment to investing in a few select companies and these, you know, massive eight-figure checks is uh, very scary, to be frank. And I wonder if your 80% is a hell yes for 90% of the people. I won't ask you to comment on that because it's a very loaded question. <laughs> but what I will ask you to comment on is, is it harder to get access to great deals or to recognize them when you see them? And w what makes a great deal obvious and how, how fast can you recognize one at this point? Uh, I mean, there are some, there are some great deals that are obvious. The problem is the valuation for that are going to be ridiculous, right? And if your job is to make multiples of your dollars, that's going to be difficult by going after only great deals and paying at that valuation, right? Um, so by default, and I think this is a, maybe it's a mindset thing, but by default, 
I know that there is a very high probability that the company I'm going to do will fail. Right? And so when I make that investment, I have that in the back of my mind, but I try to think of what are the reasons it will fail and try to backfill that. So for me, when I say diligence, you know, I am nowhere close to being an expert on the science. Right? So I, to some extent, will trust what the CSO, the scientific team, et cetera, tells me, and I'll verify it. So I'll trust but verify, and then spend more time thinking about the potential downsides and how to account for those downsides. Right? And so for me, you know, when do I ever say hell yes? I, I don't know why, but there are some technologies that I look at and I'm like, holy shit, that's cool. Right? And so for me, I, maybe that's my, I haven't really thought about this, but to me, maybe that's my criteria. It's mm -hmm. if I look at some science and I say, holy shit, that's cool. And I want to spend time learning about it. That gets me excited. Whereas if I see a company and we see, you know, like a hundred companies, 200 companies a month, there are majority of those companies are just me too's or they say, look, somebody else did that. We can do that. Somebody else did that. We can do that. That's just not exciting. So when I see something that's really cool, that automatically gets me excited and makes me want to work on that. Um, and does it happen often? And, you know, if I think something is cool, there's definitely somebody else who thinks it's cool. And so then again, you're getting to this valuation game and, and all of that. So when you build a portfolio, you have to balance out sort of good companies, de-risked companies and some more risky companies. You know, by default, when I say risky, de-risky, it's more higher valuation, lower valuation in order to make sure they're successful. Um, what I have done more recently is just started my own companies. Right? So I've been the CEO of one, I'm the pseudo CEO of another and working with an EIR for the third one all at the same time. Um, because I saw some signs, I thought, holy shit, that's really cool. Let's try to start a company around that. And then raise the capital, build the team and do that. So I did that once, handed over to a full-time management team. Um, doing that for another company at the moment now. And then the third company, an EIR, so an entrepreneur in residence came to us and said, I've got this idea. So that sounds interesting. Plus you've got the experience. Let's go figure it out. Um, this is going to sound terrible as a VC, but I am okay losing, you know, five hundred thousand, a million dollars in an early stage idea, because if it's successful, it'll make it'll pay out a lot, right? And it'll allow me because as in the end we're money managers. I have to be able to put twenty million into a company to make fifty million, and so I'm okay losing five hundred k with the option to put twenty million if it's successful versus putting 20 million at a high valuation because biology is biology and the risk of biology is always going to be the same. So let's just do that. And what's your deal flow like part? Are you, are most of your deals through warm intros, the ones you do invest in, or is it cold outreach? How are you getting deal flow? I mean, I, I don't think I've ever done a deal that came out of a cold outreach. It's just, it's, it's difficult. Um, then there's a lot of sort of other things that play there when something comes in as a, as a cold outreach that, that makes you question it. Right. Um, so it's almost always warm outreaches, people that I know, people that I trust, um, and you know, academics that I trust, et cetera, that, that usually lets me do a deal or drives a deal. Okay. I'll ask a selfish question. Recently, I've come across a couple startups that I'm excited about but they were born out of university accelerators. So the university itself collects royalties, um, 2 to 5% for 7 to 10 years in my case. How do you look at that? And is that a positive or a negative in your 
mind if a startup is born out of a university accelerator? No, I mean, if if the if the biology if the biology the technology whatever is good, um, I think that's fine. You know, royalties two to five percent, seven percent. Again, how you negotiate that is important, but that's pre market, um, and uh, I, I have no issues with that. For me, again, it boils down to what's the biology and how cool is uh, again. I say biology because you do more biotech, but how is the technology and you know is that is that is that solving a problem? And is it differentiated from the others solving a problem? Because in the end, what you're paying for and what you're buying is that differentiation, right? Yeah. And so is that differentiation truly worth it? And does the management team know how to uh, how to solve that differentiation problem? Okay. So it where it comes from, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, any any legal contract can be renegotiated. Um, and so if it needs to be, it can be. Again, then the relationships matter and that's something that we'll figure out over time. Okay, let's talk about founder equity. I recently passed on a deal that looked great on paper, that had a good sales uh, pipeline coming up, uh, good contracts already. Um, they were being valued at 10X, their ARR, which is for a pre-seed, you know, I think that's pretty good. But the founder and the CEO was brought on and only had 2% of equity and they were going to be diluted across further rounds because this is a seed um, at a 10 million valuation raise. What is your first impression on that? And how much do you kind of bank on founder or CEO equity? And what is, how little is too low at a seed stage? I mean, it, it really depends, right? Um, let me Let me flip that question around. To me, it doesn't matter how much equity you own in the beginning, right? Because like you said, that will be diluted over time. For me, what's more important is how comfortable are you with the inevitable dilution that will occur, right? If you tell me I want to own 60% when this company sells, that, that's a non-starter for me because I assume that this company will need whatever, 100 million, right? In order to be get to that stage, two three rounds, you know, multiple valuation bumps over time, you'll probably end up owning whatever the ownership is. It's hard to tell. So I don't really care about sort of what you own at the beginning. What I care more about is: Are you willing to? Are you accepting the dilution? One. More importantly, do you have protections that you have embedded in the term sheet? that make sure that you have a veto on a round of financing or something like that. Like as in you're so hell-bent on that ownership that you will block anything in order to maintain that ownership. That's a non-startup, right? So that's how I'd answer that piece of the question. The CEO question, um, you know, people need to get paid what they're worth, right? And if the CEO thinks she or he is only worth that 2% equity and they're still willing to do it, okay, that's fine, right? What will happen eventually is, you know, that CEO, if they are smart enough, will look at comps over time and will realize that they are underpaid and will ask to be made whole or equal. And if they are good enough to be worth it, if the board thinks that, if the other investors think that they're worth it, it'll happen. They'll get that equity and they'll, they'll be happy. If the board or the management or whatever thinks they're not worth it, they will leave and a new CEO will, bottom, will be brought in and the new CEO will get whatever market comes up, right? So the market never lies. And in the end, 
compensation for management will always be similar to or closer to what um, the market can bear. And I say that because, you know, like when I started one of my companies, we were, we were hiring a, a head of R&D, right? Um, and I looked at the market comp for Canada for this person's role. And it was, you know, I'm not going to say numbers, but it was a certain value. And when I told this person that value, they effectively said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, that's nowhere close to what I'm making right now. Because they were looking at the market comp in the US, which was double what I was offering. Right? So I had, a, I'm like, okay, do I take a hit of two, three months of my runway in order to pay this person? Or is this person worth it? Because they will get me the two, three run, months of runway because they're better and more efficient. Blah, blah, blah. I ended up paying this person the US market comp. And it's been an amazing decision ever since. Right? So long way of saying the market comp is the market comp. And if management will get there eventually. Okay. Let's go deeper on that. Oftentimes, and maybe it's not often, but at times you will see that the people who started the company are not the people who will scale it. Initially, commitment to the idea is critical as you have to be scrappy, you have to figure things out. But as you grow and there's a clearer vision, you want to bring in industry experts or people who have done it before or in some worlds, people say private equity people almost. When do you have that decision or that talk with the initial team that you might need to be replaced as the company grows? Do you have it at the first meeting when you meet them or do you have it later on? And just, just talk me through about that scenario. Yeah, I mean, management is usually smart enough to realize what they know and what they don't know, right? And when that transition happens, management will also tell you they can figure it out. But I think pretty quickly they they realize that it's, it's not going to happen or that they are not the best suited person for that. If it's the former, it tends to be a more friendly handover. If, if it's the latter, then it tends to be a bit more painful handover, right? Um, but I think when we invest in people who are also back in these technologies, we tend to invest in people that have experience, that understand why, what, when, and therefore it's not been that painful of a discussion to have. And sometimes they bring it up themselves. Like, look, my passion lies in early state stuff. I have zero interest in doing commercialization. So I hand it over to somebody else. I still have my equity, I still have my comp, blah, blah, blah. And I can go back to doing that. So it's it's come up rarely. But when it does, it's not tended to be a pretty painful experience. It happened once where we had to let a CEO go because they didn't get that message. Um, but that company had a whole other host of issues. That was, anyway, that's a whole other long story. Yeah, it's good to hear that it's happened rarely. The last recession saw the birth of multiple unicorns, Slack, Uber, WhatsApp, Square, Airbnb, Dropbox, Fitbit, <clears throat> a few. How has your investment strategy changed given the uh, quote-unquote looming recession? Yeah. Um, so so we we tended to, well, let, let, let's take it step back. Um, biotech, if you look at the NASDAQ stock index, has been extremely volatile, right? And so there's a pretty bear market for biotech right now. There's been a bear market. There was a bull market for the last two years. There's also a bear market in the early 2020 during COVID when no one knew what was going to happen. Um, what we did then um, was, and something we probably continue now, is back science for the sake of science and for the sake of making a difference in patient's life, right? 
And that science, that technology, it doesn't care about the recession, right? People are still getting sick. People are still getting hurt. People are still getting diseases. And the recession's not going to change that. And I'm not talking about the, the financing and the insurance market. That's a whole other ballgame. Uh, and they're always looking for new therapies. And our current war chest of therapies is, is good, but it's not great. And so if you are continuing to, and what we believe in is if you're continuing to invest in companies that are advancing biotech, that will make a difference in patients' life. And I talked about that through either clinical trials or through preclinical studies or whatever it is, then those will continue to be successful in the long run because pharma is always looking to buy them. Patients are always looking for them. And VCs have so much dry powder that they're looking to invest in them. So that's still a continuation of our thesis. We look for biology and start from there. And you know, recession or no recession, that doesn't really change um, our mindset in terms of what we look at. From a company level, it's a little different. Um, you know, in the past, we might have been a bit more, uh, we might have spent a bit more in order to get some data or hire somebody because speed was of the essence, whereas now cash is of the essence. So we try to give them that extra few months of runway in case something goes wrong or in case they need additional data to prove that or raise an extra other financing. So that's changed our mindset more than what we invest in. Okay, let's go deeper into biotech. What in biotech are you most excited about? And then I have a few questions about timeline with that investment philosophy in mind, because uh, inherently or intuitively, I, I'm i finding that it may not fit the traditional venture return timescale. But let's initially talk about what you're more excited about and what are you most excited about in biotech? Yeah. Um, bi bi biotech's... Again, I'm unbiased. I'm in the sector, but biotech has had a a renaissance in terms of discoveries over the last five to ten years, as technologies have improved and allowed us to really understand biology from a very granular perspective. And I don't talk about technologies to understand biology, but also technologies to process biology, stuff like computational computational biology, AI, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So what we're seeing now are better tools to go deeper and deeper into understanding what makes cells tick, processes tick, proteins tick, et cetera. But also to do it at a scale where you cannot, you don't have you know, me or another PhD or another scientist trying to say, oh, I'm trying to figure that out. You let AI go and figure it out and spit out what you think the pathway is. So that confluence has started to really come by. And for me, that is really exciting. The ability to go really, really granular into a, cell specific level or even into a dna specific rna specific so you know what's happening in this disease with this rna splicing as an example and then understanding that in terms of its disease causing capabilities and then also processing that level of information from an ai perspective in order to say this gene is involved or these cells are involved in healthy versus non-healthy and then using AI or using other capabilities to diagnose to, to, to develop diagnostics in order to better select those patients in order to enhance their their chance of success so precision medicine at, at, a, at an overall level that's what gets me excited I think you know if you look at the history of biotech or history of biology and therapeutics it was um, it was the whole body right your leg is broken let's fix your leg and there's miasmas that we can solve was to going to the Tissue or going to an organ specific, you know, you have a heart disease, you have a lung disease, you have a 
kidney disease. Going to tissue, you know, this part of your lung is affected. This part of your heart is affected. Going even deeper now to the cell level and saying your cells here are affected. So you have single cell genomics where you can say this part, this, this subset of cells within the tissue, within the organ, within the body is affected and is driving the disease. And then going even deeper down that level, you know, this DNA fragment is different from that and therefore driving that problem. That gets me excited. When I was graduating undergrad, so I guess when you were graduating undergrad as well, in 2008, translational medicine was all the rage. So exactly what you're saying, how that translates to clinical practice. In clinical practice, there isn't much precision medicine uh, from what I've seen in my clinical practice. You know, the antibiotics we use are broad. We throw steroids at everything and everyone feels good on steroids and it's not targeted at all. Why, what has happened in the past, you know, now 15 years that that hasn't translated into clinical practice? And what do you think needs to happen differently over the next 20 years to have that precision medicine? Now, it has happened to a bit in cancer. Now, with immunotherapy, it's happening a bit more. Um, but it really hasn't panned out. And we're still using the same penicillin and steroids that we used, you know, 50 years ago. So it, it boils down to, you know, we, this is a broadly capitalist society and what gets paid is uh, what, what gets advanced is what gets paid, right? Effectively. And who's willing to buy something at the other end um, and who's willing to fund it in order to get it to a stage where you can buy it at the other end. Um, you know, cancer, rare diseases, all of that. Um, there are a lot of, it, it's, it's more, um, what's the word? Something like something like cancer. It's 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 painful. It's really hard, and it's also got a lot of sort of attention towards it, right? Versus something like heart disease, kidney disease, all of that. No, I mean you're you're a doctor, and I can ask you so many questions about this because I'd love to learn. But the biggest killer of of people is heart disease. It's not cancer, right? But the dollars going towards cancer is significantly higher than heart disease. Um, and so what's effectively happened over the last five, six years, and we're starting to see that now is cancer, precision medicine approaches are uh, abound. Right? You can go after, if you have an MMR plus disease, you can get this therapy. And if you have MMR negative, you can get this. So it's really sort of driven by, um, by precision medicine. And that's primarily because of dollars going into that sector. Right? VCs, pharma is buying cancer therapies at a much higher rate than cardio and some of these other indications. VCs are therefore saying, I need to make a return. So I'm going to fund cancer because it generates a higher return than cardio. And the trials are shorter for ca cancer versus cardio, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's more interest going towards that. My broader thesis, and at least what I'm hoping for and what I'm trying to drive is at some point, you can only do so much in cancer because you've got into that 80%, right? And how much more dollars do you want to spend to go from 80 to 100? Because how much are you solving, right? Do you really need a 10th line of therapy when four or five lines is enough? And at some point, the patients themselves are saying enough, right? I'm, I'm done. Um, so I'm hoping that this precision approach that's now been tested and validated with oncology applies to some of the other indications like cardio and you know neurology mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And that's what I'm trying to drive I'm trying to say, if I start a company, can I look at a cardio-based approach to infectious diseases? 
can I look at a cardio-based approach, um, a precision-based approach to autoimmune conditions, to neurology, and to drive that forward? That's what I'm trying to do. It's can we learn from that and apply it somewhere else? Yeah, it, this is an interesting question. And surprisingly, I haven't thought much about it. So I'm going to think kind of on the fly here. I think part of it is cancer is, is such a scary diagnosis. And it usually is indolent for a long time where you don't have symptoms for a long time and then you have them and then you know you have cancer and then it's an urgency. There's a sense of urgency with cancer that there isn't with diabetes and high blood pressure, which are the drivers of heart disease 10, 20 dollars light. The other answer I would give is the treatment for heart disease and diabetes quite a bit is diet and exercise, which people don't like to hear. And there's not much money to be made in terms of this is this one novel diet we can develop through research and clinical trials. Like we know the Mediterranean diet is the best diet from a clinical perspective and exercise, you know, go for walks, exercise. Like there's, there's not much there in terms of from a capital perspective, but cancer, there is no diet and exercise that's been proven so far to be effective for cancer treatment and therefore rely on drugs. So I think that sense of urgency you know, if you go through the marketing principles, and I'll, I'll and again, I might butcher this, uh, by Robert Caldini, he wrote this book, Influence Persuasion. He's kind of the guru of marketing. Um, so he talks about scarcity, urgency, social proof, or the kind of, there's five of them. I'm forgetting the other two, but they apply to cancer. They don't apply to heart disease. Uh, there is no sense of urgency. There aren't people suffering from diabetes and, you know, physically, it's not the same way. You're not shaving your head. Um, and a lot of biases against diabetes, it affects the low SES population more significantly. And I think that creates a bias towards who gets diabetes, who suffers from it, uh, which is not fair. And I see this in my patient population a lot. But from a purely, you know, evil capitalist perspective, um, they don't have good insurance, they're not going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for treatment. So why put money in there? It would be amazing to have therapies for heart disease, heart failure, hypertension, diabetes that are more targeted. The ones we have right now, they are dealing with the end results and most of them are, are they're focusing on symptom management and preventing disease or progression, but they don't reverse the disease. Almost none of them do because even the pathophysiology is so poorly understood that we, we don't we don't know how. And I, I think there's a there's a gap here for physician medicine. But I don't know if just the principles of marketing allow for that gap to be filled without a shift in our mindset of what diabetes and heart disease is and how much it actually damages our society and ourselves. Yeah, I I think it you know it it boils down to incentives as well, right? Um you know. The, the heyday for diabetes and cardio research um, was the, uh, I'm probably going to say it's wrong, but let's say the 80s and 90s when Lipitor and Metformin and all of these came out. And when they when they first came out, they were they were priced quite high. Right? I mean, I, I have no idea what Lipitor was and all of these other, uh, 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 what's the class? The, um, uh, the statins? The statins. The statins. You know, there was a lot of money that went to them they had a lot of benefit 
and uh, the, the the low hanging fruit of the disease was broadly treated with that right yeah. and people just assumed that should be enough and now you know do we really want to run a clinical trial and this goes back to the the money stuff do we really want to run a 10 year 5 year 3 year clinical trial where we think the outcome is going to work or not it's, it's difficult right it's the same issue with vaccines it's the same issue with with antibiotics right um whereas precision medicine because by nature it's fewer patients you can charge more per patient and you have a good sense of if this is positive i can sell this i can raise money i can do x i can do y it's driven the market towards that um now at some point a majority of the small molecules and even some anti some some antibodies that came out in the 90s the 2000s and the 2010s will go generic right and they should go generic um and i'm hoping that the wave that you saw in the 90s and early 2000s with the avastins and the the the, the statins is what you will see with the precision cancer approaches and the precision other approaches that exist right now that are high priced and then eventually the field will move towards changing other things right now what we are seeing is we are starting to see some precision approaches in diabetes some precision precision approaches in cardio um the problem is and I, i talk to doctors about this all the time like look if i if i'm if i'm creating an antibody against pcsk9 which is now approved yeah. right um who will you give it to and every single doctor has said i will only give it to you know x percent of my patients because statins work so well and if statin 1 doesn't work i'll give statin 2 statin 2 doesn't work i'll give statin 3 or i'll give combos of statins and and really try to drive that forward um and so for me i am trying to now i have to deploy my capital and i have to return money for my investors so why would i try to do a drug that's competing for such a low value of patients there's such a low number of patients but also i can't charge as much as i can in order to maximize what i can during the patent life right so that's part of the miscue incentives that exist um uh, there's a book by um uh, rk capital founder um I'm blanking on his name now but it's called the great american drug deal that mm-hmm. talks a lot about the lot talks a lot about sort of what we as an industry need to do because we are working in next in in innovation what the market needs to understand in terms of the price that comes in for that innovation in terms of the te- nine failures for the one success and what the government needs to understand in order to pay for that right so it's a way too complicated system that you know, we can't really solve solve now but um i'm hoping that even if those problems don't get solved the learnings tend to be more universal and those learnings apply to um to other indications that allows us to get better treatments for patients that actually make a difference right because i'm sure you'll tell me statins work in 60% of the patients but 40% of the patients have no benefit i'm just throwing a number out there right um yeah. so how can we solve those 40% of the patients how can we solve the 20% of the patients that don't work with current therapies and i'm hoping that eventually we'll get to that stage you know like for better or worse there's this been such a focus on diet and exercise for heart disease and diabetes that and this is from both physicians and patients that were moving away cuz most patients you know they don't want to be on medications um for cancer there's just an acceptance that you have to have medication radiation surgery because it's it's usually for a short period right like uh, apart from some leukemias and lymphomas like you you have medication for 6 months to a year and then you're you're done you're in remission you get monitoring diabetes and heart disease isn't like that 
if you're diagnosed at 30, you are on medication forever. So the goal is always to get off medication. And I don't know if that lines well with creating drugs if the goal is to get off them. Um, and maybe it does with a higher price. And if they are, as you, if, you know, if it's precision medicine, it's actually reversing the disease. And I think we need to learn more about hypertension and how, like right now we have what we call the Vercos triad, which is there are three things that lead to plaque formation. Um, it's hypercoagulability, so genetic states like factor five, light, and I'm losing every listener right now. <laughs> Endothelial injury, which is turbulent blood flow from hypertension, and stasis, or blood is not flowing well, which happens in uh, irregular heartbeat or atrial fibrillation or heart failure because your ventricle expands as well. Um, we don't know more than that. And, and that is not a molecular explanation, right? That's not a cellular explanation. That's just these three things can cause plaques, which can lead to heart attacks, which can lead to arrhythmias, heart failure, lots of different things. Uh, in cancer, there's just a lot more research in understanding the genetic and the molecular pathway. And I know those are two different things, but I just, I don't see that from my perspective in cardiology and diabetes. And I would love for you to correct me. Where is there molecular research on that? And will we move to a better understanding of why these diseases happen so we can reverse them with precision medicine? And maybe PSK9 inhibitors is a good example. Primary hyperlipidemia or primary elevated cholesterol, we don't treat anymore, unless the exception would be if your triglycerides are 10, which is very high, and your risk of pancreatitis, but that's a separate conversation. I'm going to stop because I'm just going to lose everyone <laughs> the deeper I go into the science of this. But give me your understanding, and you know, I'd love for you to challenge me. Is why is it more research being done, or is it's being done, and I just don't know about it and the pathophysiology behind them? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, cardiology PCSK9 is a good example. There's a number of um, was it um, I'm going to butcher it. I think it's ETFR or EG, no, not EGFR. Um, there was so PCSK9 and another genetic component to cardiac to cardiac disease was studied at the same time. PCSK9 won this one really didn't really work out and then failed. Um, and this was about ten years ago. Um, uh, obesity, you know, there's a lot of work going into obesity. Um, but I mean, you, you, I think you know this better than me. Obesity is not one disease; it's multiple diseases, right? It's it's its symptom is common, but the pathophysiology is different. Uh, and um, you, you probably, I'm sure, gotten a lot of requests from people asking for that uh, anti-obesity drug. Um, yeah, we go on 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 label as well as off off label. So there is some work going into that, um, and then diabetes as well. I think you know that you can't you can't give one medicine and fix diabetes. I think diabetes tends to be a little bit more complex, but it's also more approachable. So you know we have looked at a number of companies that are creating. 3D organoids for diabetes or uh, 3D pancreases or 3DX and 3DY in order to produce insulin and do that. So there is some work going there. I think the issue and the reason, you know, if I, if someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm starting a cardiac, I'm starting a, you know, I've identified this genetic mutation for cardiology. Give me money. My first question is, what's the clinical trial plan? And if you tell me my clinical trial is five years and it needs 10,000 patients, right? I'm trying to calculate, okay, so that's a $50 million trial, right? So do I really want to deploy my money for five years 
where the outcome could be a yes or a no, right? Whereas in cancer, I know because in a phase one trial, I will get some semblance of tissue reduction, uh, um, you know, uh, cancer reduction. Patients will start feeling better, blah, blah, blah. So I can see positive outcomes immediately. And therefore, I can raise additional capital on that. I can sell it to somebody. I can do that, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you were to take a complete step back, one of the biggest criticisms about public companies and going public is that you're very hell-bent upon your quarterly reports and making sure you hit that. Diseases have started to have a similar outcome as well, right? What is the fastest way I can get a data point that I can then go out and raise additional capital around, additional, um, uh, you know, a transaction around because that's the currency for a VC, it's currency for pharma. And the patient is a part of that process, but it's not a core component of the process. Um, now, in cardiology, if someone was to come and tell me, look, I have discovered this gene. I know that if I modulate that gene, I will have this endpoint. I can study this endpoint. And I know that you know the FDA tells me that this endpoint is sufficient to, to get phase two, or, you know, the, the whole process. That gets me excited because I know that there's a short-term outcome for my dollars where I'm willing to lose it all, but I don't want to wait for five years to know if I've lost it or kept it. I want to wait a year in order to see that. And there's a couple of companies. So there's Verve Therapeutics in uh, in Boston. There's a couple of other gene therapy companies looking at cardiology and sort of precision cardiology in order to figure out whether it works or not. Uh, we have a portfolio company that's looking at uh, long QT syndrome. Uh, yeah. And sort of the driver, the genetic drivers behind that in order to see if you can modulate that and get an outcome one way or the other. So there is that's still, there is a lot of work going into that, but it's not in the umbrella of cardiology or umbrella of diabetes. It's in small subsets because the best way to, what is that, that phrase? The best way to eat a pie is to cut into small pieces. And that's what we're trying to do now. That goes back to what I said, the precision approach, right? You're trying to get smaller fragments and solve for that versus getting the bigger picture. Yeah, I think long QT syndrome is something that is um, worth fixing. And there's a lot of medications we use, um, anti-nausea medications, mental health medications, methadone that prolong it more and that, you know, it's a problem. So I think something to fix that would be great part. No. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that conversation is exactly what we have with academics, right? Look, when we before we made the investment, we talked to ten cardiologists, twenty cardiologists. Like, tell me about your process. How are you treating these patients, right? So that goes back to, you know, about when we started talking about VC. Um, how do you do diligence? If you were to do hundred percent of your work, you would talk to a thousand cardiologists or a hundred cardiologists, right? Stupid. You talk to ten at some point, the answers are repetitive. But for me, it was okay. How do you understand the pathway for patient treatment? So if they're what's the diagnosis process? How many are diagnosed? Uh, how many failures? What's the treatment? So if you had told me, listen, you know, I think you said methadone, but could be wrong. Listen, methadone works in 95% of the patients and we had never have a problem with that. I'm like, okay, so 5% of the patients, is it worth me investing 100 million, raising 100 million around this to solve that problem? Unlikely. It solves for 30% of the patients and okay, you can figure out what's the right fragment. How do you price that and how do you drive that? Problem? Yeah. No, I so methadone makes it longer, makes it worse. The only treatment we have is magnesium, so. and it's temporary. Um, but I'll, let's go back to investing before everyone leaves. <laughs> Tailwinds drive a considerable amount of success. Do you agree or disagree with that? And what early tailwinds are you banking on right now? And another way to answer this question is: What emerging markets do you think are growing that are good 
to invest in startups in right now? Emerging markets in the market definition or emerging markets in the uh, science and the definition. science definition and also what tailwinds so a couple of tailwinds like COVID would be a tailwind obviously it's, it's impossible to predict that but what what are some you're predicting um, or work from home would be a possible tailwind we're predicting right yeah. now or education moving away so, from knowledge based to uh, application based yeah. yeah so um, one of the one of the tailwinds I don't know if it's a tailwind I'll just talk about sort of what, how I think about this um, you know one of the things that I saw a couple of years ago was, look, everyone's talking about AI and everyone's talking about figuring out what cats look like, right? Sure, that's important, but could they, could you use it in other areas, right? And there were a lot, I'm not, I'm not the first person to think about this. There was a lot of AI interest in biology. But for me, the question was, okay, how important is AI in biology and how important, to, how important will it continue to be? before it becomes a commodity, right? So there's a small window where new technology is really new technology before it becomes a commodity. How long is that space? And how do you invest in that as quickly as possible in order to account for that tailwind? And so uh, I led our team's investment in deep genomics out of Toronto. Um, I led our team's investment in a company called Celsius out of, um, uh, out of Boston. And both of them are, um, you know, biology companies that use AI to process data and do X, right? In the case of deep genomics, it's identify uh, steric blocking oligos against rare diseases. In Celsius's case, it's looking at single cell genomics in order to understand um, you know, how one set of patients reacts to therapy or does not react to therapy versus other in order to find that genetic component to disease and, and vice versa. I continue to think that that would become uh, that, that'll, that'll, that'll stay an, an AI enabled biology will become a core component of biology. But I think we're already getting into the point where it's starting to become commoditized. Right? So every company will use some form of AI or the other in order to drive that forward. That's one that will still, we've still got that window before it's starting to become commoditized. So that's something that we're looking at in, in great detail um, and going into more and more subsets. The other one that I think will become really cool and we talked about it a little bit is, um, you know, there is you there is nothing new in the world. Period. There is only stuff that can be discovered and used in a different area, right? And that could be new by definition, but if you look at it, it probably has a history of how it is developed and how it is how it is identified. And so, for me, that applies to oncology and neurology, like we talked about. You know, I think that we will be moving towards more precision-based approaches in neurology. So we won't treat autism, which is an umbrella term but we might treat some aspects of autism, some genetic drivers of autism in order to get to that, you know, get, get to better treatment. And the best example of that is, you know, cystic fibrosis, um, huge gene, multiple mutations. Um, Vertex started off with 5% of the patients and now covers about 95% of the patients. So I think that's going to apply for neurology and going to apply for other, other areas as well. The other one that I think, you know, could be really interesting, and I don't think we've even scratched the surface of that, is um, you know, we talk a lot about genetic drivers of disease and every single gene therapy at the moment is saying, I will go and change that one gene and it'll solve all problems. It's never going to work, right? So how can you develop combination gene therapies in order to drive that forward? Um, you know, to say, to almost get to the C word, the cure word, right? There's still probably 15, 20 years out from there, but 
there are starting you're starting to see a lot of these trends towards CRISPR based approaches or gene editing based approaches that are starting to move in that direction, but we're still in early days there. So again, it goes back to we are in that phase where it's new technology and it's exciting. Yeah. But let's see if we can maximize that before it becomes a commodity. You know, it, it sounds like you're you're excited. You're banking on the product or the technology itself, and the market is almost secondary. And I might not be reading this right. In venture, the timeline is generally five to ten years. Is that your timeline as well in terms of returning capital? And how do you balance that with biotech, which you know the timeline might be fifteen to twenty years at times? Yeah. So, so the 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 good thing and the bad thing for therapeutics is the market exists. Right. Yeah. There are patients with that disease. Right. You're not having to create a market of sorts. And so, I mean, it's still a core component of our diligence. You know. Are we solving a disease that affects 10 people in the world, a thousand people, or a hundred thousand people? Right? That's a core component of our diligence. So, but the market exists. And so for us, it's a question of what, what is the proportion of market that is best suited for the technology? And how do you solve that first before you can expand? Right. So that's how I think of it. So it's not about the market doesn't exist. I don't care about it. Let me look at a technology, but it's let me look at this technology. How is it differentiated from the other technologies out there? And how is it truly solving the problem for X number of patients that have this disease? And then as the company expands or it gets acquired or whatever happens, how do you scale that up? Um, we've been in a bull market for the last four or five years, whether for good or bad, but a lot of companies have gone public with preclinical data or even earlier data. Then um, there's going to be a culling of that over the next couple of years for sure. Um, but you know, going back to timelines, we have the same year, same like five years of investment, ten years of of um, you know ten years to return the capital, um, and so we we tend to drive our companies to go public uh, once the data is appropriate, when appropriate, when the market is ready for it, because our job as money managers is to enable these companies to grow up and become self-sustaining in some capacity or the other, right? And that could be an even either their biology works and it's got some validation. They've got capital and they've got a management team. And if you can solve those three problems and the company can go public, then they will need to raise additional capital from the markets, but they have the capacity to do that. And there are other investors that go and invest in that sector and we can hand it over to them. And we can go back to what we enjoy doing, which is starting companies and investing in them and getting them to the stage where they're ready. It often works out in the seven, seven to 10-year time frame. Um, that is Dutchwood. I hope it does. It did for the past. It will continue to do for us. And so that's that's the place we play in. And I think the market is big enough that there are people in every sector and play in different areas that will continue to allow these companies to scale up and get products to patients. Yeah. Again, this is another differentiator you have where most investors would want an acquisition and not to go public and deal with banks. How... Is that because you have just perfected a process of going public? <clears throat> Why not more M and A activity, which is what most investors, from my knowledge, go, go towards? Yeah, I mean, so it's not like we will we will say no to an M and A, right? Uh, the price the price has to be right. I think what we have seen and what we saw with um, the BDC fund and with the current fund is, if you are if you are building a company to get it sold, then you are hell bent on somebody else buying that company, right? So you're, 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 
it's almost like you're putting the responsibility on someone else. And if that person or those people don't buy it, then what? You're screwed, right? Whereas mm-hmm. if you can build a company to, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a kid, right? If you raise your kid to be a doctor only, and if they're not a doctor, what happens then, right? Are you disappointed? Are you, are you disowning them? What happens, right? It's, it's not going to happen. So you, you, build, you build resilience in the company when you build optionality. And you say, look, we will enable you to get to a stage where you can go public, right? After that, you're on, you're on your own. If you choose to buy another company, go for it. If you choose to sell, go for it. If you choose to do X, go for it. It's really up to you. And yeah. what we have seen is that creating that optionality where you know the company can say, listen, M&A buyer, your offer is not good enough, so I'm going to go public, tends to drive up the price because M&A buyers will say, yeah, you know what? Actually, fine, I can pay more because you have optionality. And so that's how we think about it. Wow. Now, that also was a thinking when the markets were hot and any company could go public. Um, that's obviously changed now. Uh, but I think the core is if you can build good technology, good management, and good data, good things will happen. That's a very interesting take, but it makes complete sense. I'll ask you one last question. Ikigai is this Japanese concept of purpose for being. It's the intersection of what you love to do, what you're good at, and what the world will pay you for. Have you found your Ikigai? And what is the end goal for you personally, Bharat? That's that's way too philosophical a question. Uh, I, for me, it's, you know, well, let, let's, since it's your last question, I'll, I'll loop it back to your first question. You said what drives you as a kid and what allows you to stay stay you know be who you are and what have you pushed out and i told you then curiosity was what i had as a kid and what i think continues to drive me and that's still the answer now right for me it's i won't say it's a love for learning because that's just too cheesy but it's more a sense of i want to know how things work i want to understand how what when where why and so for me what i enjoy doing is talking to smarter people way more smarter people than i and wondering what they're doing, why they're doing it, and why they've dedicated so much of their life to do just that one thing and that one thing only, right? And just about talking to them for me is exciting and and energizing. Um, and the positive outcome of that, because of the sector that I've chosen, is it benefits patients, right? Because you're developing new therapies, right? And so that's one positive. And then the other positive is um, the best way to do it I, I don't have the, the $200 million to go do it by myself. I need to raise it from other people. And so if I enable them to deploy that capital and generate a return for them, then that makes them happy because they have pensioners and all of that where they're paying that money out. So there's sort of that you know, multitude of effects that come that I think can only be, that for me personally can be done because I'm curious and I like learning about new stuff. And as long as I can keep doing that, I'll do it. Talking to smarter people is what I'm trying to do with this podcast, and I'm very lucky to have people like yourself join me. So thank you so much, Parth, for coming on. And uh, you, you and I went to undergrad together. You yeah. know that I'm. There, there were way smarter people than I than you and I. But you, so. you have, I think, smartness and intellect and intelligence is hard to define. But I would define it both by inherent talent and how you apply it, the application of that talent is more important than that talent. 
So by that metric, I, I would qualify you as as very smart, Parth. I right, right time, right place. Market has been market's been good. Yeah. Say that. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. We'll have to no do worries, it too sometime. Thanks, Rashad.